All right, good evening. Please take your Bibles and join me in Daniel. We'll be in the fifth chapter tonight. We're beginning a new chapter. Last week, for the first time ever, I covered an entire chapter in one message, and I hated it. I felt rushed. I felt like there were applications that were not made, and I am anti-doing that again. I tried it for the comfort of the saints. Sometimes I wonder if people grow weary at the pace in which I go, and I'm concerned about you no more. Um, So I'm going back to taking my time going through this. And if we finish a chapter, great. If we finish one verse, great. If we finish one phrase, great. (laughs) All right, Daniel chapter 5, let's read verse 1 as an introduction. The Bible says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. As we come to chapter 5, I feel it's important that we understand what is happening behind the scenes. First, many years have passed since the end of chapter 4. And several kings have come and gone in the Babylonian Empire during that time. While that's happening, the Persians are gaining strength. They're to the east of Babylon. And Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, he made an alliance with a man named Darius. The proper pronunciation would probably be Darius, but... We'll just say Darius. He's the king of the Medes. And after defeating them, it led to the establishment of the Medo-Persian Empire. And we'll see in Daniel chapter 8 that Daniel, he has a vision of this alliance to come. In Daniel 8 and verse 3, it says, Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And so the two horns represent the Medes and the Persians, and the higher horn is the Persians, the lower horn will be the Medes. And eventually it would just become known as the Persian Empire because that higher horn takes over in power and it's... That's what's being represented there in that vision in in 8 and verse 3. We're told in verse 1 here, Belshazzar is the king. According to secular history, he was a co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. And Belshazzar is called king because Nabonidus is to the south in a self-imposed exile. He's out in a southern outpost at the south end of the Arabian desert in a town called Taima. Um, It's really like an oasis out there. And the exact reasons for why he's down there are not readily known. But one common thought is that Nabonidus wanted to decrease the worship of Marduk in Babylon, which was their patron, uh, patron deity. And he wanted to increase the worship of the moon god called Sin. And this division led him to leaving the city. There was a lot of infighting with the various priests. 
And another common reason is that Nabonidus was in exile recovering from a physical ailment that he had been suffering along with a potential, some people say, a mental condition. And that has led critics of the Bible to say, no, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, but it was actually Nabonidus who was out in the field because it is written that Nabonidus, it was a seven-year thing that he had dealt with. I think the Bible is absolutely clear to the facts, amen? We'll even see in this chapter, it was Nebuchadnezzar. But that's how Bible critics think. So whatever the reason for Nabonidus' absence, Belshazzar has taken the role of king. And the meaning of Belshazzar's name is really important for the background of this chapter. It means Baal, B-E-L, Baal, protect the king. Baal, the chief deity of the Babylonian Empire, it's ironic that his name means Baal, protect the king. He's not going to live through this chapter. Now, before this chapter begins, some battles had been taking place between the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians within the borders of the Babylonian Empire. Cyrus's strength is increasing, and, and as a result of that, he is starting to have victories over the Babylonians, and he ends up having a very decisive victory over them, which led to the, the Babylonians fleeing into the city of Babylon. Because they felt the city was impenetrable. And, and this was for good reason. If you've ever studied the city of Babylon, humanly speaking, they were right to have that opinion. You'll, you'll come across some variations of this, but generally speaking, I want you to hear how well fortified Babylon was. According to ancient historians, as you approached the city you would be met with a moat, a rather large moat, that surrounded the city, and it was both deep and wide. And after that moat, if you got past the moat, you encountered a wall which was 300 feet high and 25 feet thick. And that's the smallest estimate out there. This was an extremely huge wall. And this wall, 300 feet high, 25 feet, feet thick, went 14 miles in each direction, making a 56-mile 50, square. On the wall, there were 250 towers, and those towers would reach 450 feet high. Of course, they would have archers there. If you could get past the outer wall, then you would come to an inner wall after that that was 75 feet high, but also went down into the ground 35 feet. The Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city. That's how they got their water during a fortification. And to prevent an invasion through the river, they installed these metal grates that extended down into the water to keep people from coming in. They didn't extend all the way, as I'll explain tonight. But they did have those. And they were so well fortified. I only, I only read this in Matthew Henry's commentary, so I don't know how accurate this is, but he stated that the city would have had 20 years worth of provisions. So they're, they're ready. They can withstand anything as they're thinking. They're definitely well fortified. And this great military advantage 
that they had led to them becoming very prideful inside of the city. They had the idea, we cannot be defeated inside of here. And that's why all these lords have gathered into the city. They've come for the fortification to weather the uh, siege of their city by the Persians. Now, here's what we need to know when we come to chapter 5. While the events of this chapter are taking place inside the city, outside of the city, the Medo-Persian army has surrounded them. And, and, and this, was, this was actually foretold by God. And, and let's not forget the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. Uh, talking about them coming... I'm sorry, I, maybe I wasn't clear there. It was foretold by God that somebody was coming against the Babylonians. Remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And after that was the chest and the arms of silver. And that was the Medo-Persian Empire being represented there. In Isaiah 13, verses 17 through 19, it says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash, dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, and the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Jeremiah 51, 11, it says, Make bright the arrows, gather the shields. The Lord hath raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes for His devices against Babylon to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of His temple. Remember when the Babylonians came in, they had first sieged Jerusalem and they put them under tribute. But after a time, they eventually destroyed Babylon, because they refused to do what Jeremiah the prophet said, and that is, just give yourself to captivity. Don't fight the king of Babylon. But they did. And so when Nebuchadnezzar came in, they utterly destroyed it, and, and they destroyed that temple. And God there in Jeremiah 51, 11, before Nebuchadnezzar, um, or, or before that time, is saying, there's coming a day when God is going to get vengeance for what He did to the temple. Now, I wanted to lay all this groundwork for you because I want you to get this prideful scene in your minds of what is taking place in our text. The city is, is under a military blockade by the Medo-Persians. And during that time, Belshazzar decides, let's throw a party. And that's why I think it's important we understand what's taking place outside of the city. This man is, is crazy. And so here he is, he's thinking, I'm totally protected. Got nothing to worry about. And he decides to have this celebration. Remember, his name means Baal, protect the king. And they're so well fortified, they're celebrating within while the enemy is without. And it's like saying, look guys, there's no worry. Baal will protect us and we can withstand this blockade. Well, according to secular history, Cyrus became aware that there was going to be a big celebration taking place. Some say that this was a national feast, so it was known ahead of time that the day was coming. Everyone would probably be 
well liquored up. It would probably be a time that their guards would be dropped. And so Cyrus began to make plans. All we're told in verse 1, biblically, is that Belshazzar made a great feast. And Cyrus figures this is the time we can attack them. There will be minimal resistance. And so while the preparations are being made for the celebration, outside preparations are being made for an attack. They're going to enter the city through the one vulnerability in Babylon, and that is through the river. So what Cyrus and them do, the the Medo-Persian army do, is they go upstream of the Euphrates and they reroute the river. And by rerouting the river, they drop the level in the river in order to gain access under those metal grates. And the levels are dropping... Now, and I want you to keep that in mind. As the levels of the water is beginning to drop, chapter 5 is taking place. Their enemy's going to enter in. They're easily going to take that outlying area around the city. The majority of the city doesn't have a clue what's going on. They're partying. And, and they're coming in the city. The Medo-Persians are taking over. And, and as we'll see in verse 30, on this night, Belshazzar will be slain. And and this is really quite fascinating to consider what all is going on behind the scenes while the events of this chapter are unfolding. And so with that in your mind, let's read this chapter. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and rode over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make it known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was king Belshazzar greatly troubled and his countenance was changed in him and his lords were astonished. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. And the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, uh, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in this same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he will show thee uh, the interpretation. 
Excuse me. And he will show the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou Daniel, which are art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought out of Jewry? And, and I'm going to skip this for sake of time, because we're not even getting this far tonight. But long story short, he comes in, he interprets it, and I want you to see in verse 30, In that night Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans, of the Chaldeans was slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years. So this is remarkable, amen? All of this happens really quick. And I've already alluded to this, but we're meant to see the immense pride that Belshazzar has during this scene. And in this regard, chapter 5 is similar to chapter 4 when you think about it. Remember how chapter 4 ended. It says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and His ways judgment, and those that walk in pride He is able to abase. Chapter 4 was all about breaking Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And now we come to this chapter and we have another case of a king's pride. And I think before this is over, we can make the argument Belshazzar's got a worse pride problem than Nebuchadnezzar did. And so here he is. While Belshazzar's enemy is surrounding him, he throws a feast. And he's got a thousand of his rulers there, and he's acting like he doesn't have a care in the world. This isn't a party that they're eating and drinking and being merry for tomorrow we die. No, this is a party we're eating, drinking, and being merry because we've got nothing to worry about. And this is, this is all his confidence in his false God, in his fortifications, in his provisions. And he throws this extravagant party with no fear of anything. Now notice the furtherance of his pride in verse 2. As he's drinking wine, he commands the vessels which were taken out of the temple of God to be brought in. And those are the ones Nebuchadnezzar, he first took some when he first besieged Jerusalem, but then he took them all when he destroyed the temple. In Daniel 1-2, you may remember it says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, into the house of his God, and he brought vessels into the treasure house of his God. So, I think what's happening here... We're probably venturing into opinion here. I think this is more than just them saying, we want some fat, fancy cups to drink out of. I think there's more here than that. This isn't, let's have fancy vessels so we can make our feast a fancy feast. So we have to go back. When we think about this thought, we have to go back to when Jerusalem was being surrounded by Nebuchadnezzar. This is before they were destroyed. This is what it says in Jeremiah 27, verses 16 through 22. Also, I spake to the priest and to all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hearken not to the words of your prophets that prophesy unto you, saying, Behold, the vessel of the Lord's house shall now shortly be brought again from Babylon. He says, For they, they prophesy a lie unto you. Hearken not unto them. Jeremiah says, Serve the king of Babylon and live. 
Wherefore should this city be laid waste? But if they be prophets, and if the word of the Lord be with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts, that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, and in the house of the king of Judah, and at Jerusalem, go not to Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the bases, and concerning the residue of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon took not, which he, when he carried away the captive uh, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon. By the way, that's when Daniel was taken away. And all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yea, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried away into Babylon. And they shall be there, listen, they shall be there until the day that I visit them, saith the Lord. Then will I bring them up and restore them to this place. Say, what's the big deal? It's just vessels. Remember Daniel 5 It's going to bring us to the end of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar, after that, the the Persians are taken over. This is hugely significant because God had... Man, I'm spitting all over the place, amen. I'm excited. Everybody else get excited, amen. This is going to bring us to the end of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Cyrus is going to take over. He's going to install Darius as the king over Babylon. And so all of this is bringing us to that point. This is critical. That is finally coming to an end. By the way, Daniel's an old man by now. And, and so we're, we're coming up to this point. And I just read in Jeremiah there, the vessels of the temple of the Lord, they would go back to Jerusalem when this captivity was over. And we know from Daniel 9, Daniel had been reading the book of Jeremiah. That's how he comes to have his prayer in Daniel 9. And so... He knows they're approaching the end. And there may have been others that had been reading Jeremiah's prophecy. They, they were starting to do the math. And either way, it, it was a well-known fact that this captivity was to last 70 years. And it would have been known that it was foretold by the same Jeremiah who said it's going to last 70 years and it was going to end by Cyrus. It, it would have been known that the vessels were going to be returned back to Jerusalem. Everybody with me? And so I I imagine there there were those within that Hebrew captivity that were doing the math going, we got to be getting close. Wait a minute, what's happening outside the city? They're being surrounded. And people have got to be starting to put this together. Wait a minute, if they come in and they win, this could be the end of this captivity. So as the the Medo-Persian army is surrounding the city, it could have led to this chatter by the Hebrews to say, man, this could be it. And and maybe even others, because there would have been other people who knew this. And and they they would have been saying, "The, the end is approaching. And therefore, these vessels would go back to Jerusalem, ultimately back to the temple. As we think about this scene in this light, it could be Belshazzar is rubbing it in. I am not concerned one bit about those armies out there. I'm not worried about the Persians. I'm not worried about these Hebrew captives being set free, even though their God foretold of it. And to prove his prideful position, 
he calls for the temple vessels. Now, whether this was in his mind or not, I do think the act of bringing in the temple vessels was still meant as an affront to God, the God of Israel. I believe he is showing how boastful he was of his false gods. The fact that they had power over the God of the Hebrews and the God of the temple that was once standing in Jerusalem. Therefore, why should I worry about the Medo-Persian armies out there? I'm not concerned. Look, the Hebrews' gods couldn't help them. None of the other nations' gods could help them. I'm not worried about the Persians' gods, the Medes' gods. We're fine. We cannot be defeated. And I think this had to be part of what's going on here because we're told in verse 4 that as they drank their wine in these temple vessels, now remember, these have been dedicated to God Almighty. They are praising their gods of gold and of silver and of wood, of iron and brass and stone. What are they praising them for? It would seem to me in context they're praising them for the victory over all the other nations, and in particular with these vessels, the God of Israel. And, and in those days, you got to remember that when it came to warfare among nations, it wasn't so much your military superiority, but it was my God is better than your God. And that's the way they thought back then. And so th- there's, there's more here going on than just the fact that we're the great Babylon military uh, superiority. But it's we conquered you as a result. Our God must be bigger than your God. And so this man, Belshazzar, he is out of control in the sight of God. He's profaned the temple vessels by having him his princes, his wives, his concubines all drink from them. And all the while, he's praising his false gods. He's mocking the true God. And he's basically, he's basically daring God, I dare you to do something about it. But wait a minute. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And now in verses 5 and 6, the man who seemed to fear nothing... He's overcome with fear. And instantly, God kills the sacrilegious mood of this party. You ever chilled a room before? You know, God just chilled the room. Daniel 5, verses 5 and 6, look at what it says. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and rode over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. And hence the idiom, he saw the handwriting on the wall. Hey, listen, if you see fingers appear out of nowhere which begin to write on the wall, mark it down, it's probably not a good thing. (laughs) And it says this took place over against the candlestick. This is... I believe given to us to show this is not something off in the shadows. This is something that was plainly seen. There was no mistaking what's taking place. All could see this. There's no doubt. In verse 6, the king was terrified and his face went pale. The Bible says the joints of his loins were loosed, which according to my research means exactly what you're wondering if it means. 
he needed a change of shorts. I like how commentator Matthew Poole put it. It is like an earthquake in the bowels. That's how they wrote in the 1700s, 1600s, amen. And then he buckles and he trembles in fear. By the way, this night was foretold of over a hundred years ahead of time by Isaiah. Isaiah 21, verses 2 through 4. A grievous vision is declared unto me. The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Listen, go up, O Elam. That's another word for for the Persians. That was their, their main hub. Go up, O Elam. Besiege, O Media, which we know is the Medes. All the sighing thereof have I made to cease. Listen to this. Therefore, all my loins filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold upon me as the pangs of a woman that travaileth. I bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart panted. Fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear unto me. Isn't that amazing? This night was foretold. This blows my mind. All those years prior. Isaiah 45 verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. He's calling Cyrus by name before he's ever born. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates. The gates shall not be shut. Now hang on just a second. What is Belshazzar so afraid of? Wasn't he just praising his false gods? Shouldn't he be okay with some sort of an aberration if his gods were alive? You following my thinking? Isn't it possible that it could have been good news? Why is this man so frightened? I mean, he can't even read what's written. Or at least he can't interpret it. There were no bright flashes of light. There were no thunderous sounds. There was no terror of darkness. There's no ominous music playing. None of this. There's no creepy laugh. (laughs) All right, I won't do it. There's no ventriloquist dummy running around. There's no voice heard from heaven. Why is Belshazzar so terrified? Well, notice verse 6 again. And it says, And his thoughts troubled him. Don't miss this. What terrified the king? It was his own thoughts. You know what scared him? He had a guilty conscience. This is the meat now, so let's get this. He had a guilty conscience. Something inside of him instantly convinced him he was not receiving any good news, but only terror. The Family Bible Note says, quote, A guilty conscience makes wicked men tremble 
before every token of God's presence. For they rightly interpret it as being to them a sign of coming wrath. End quote. Matthew Henry wrote, God can soon awaken the most secure and make the heart of the stoutest sinner to tremble. And there needs no more to do it than to let loose his own thoughts upon him. They will soon play the tyrant and give him trouble enough. Paul wrote in in Romans 2.15 about a law that's written upon our hearts. Remember that? It it says, it's saying that our conscience, it, it bears witness. It bears witness of how our thoughts will either accuse or excuse one another. Or they will condemn. What it's saying is it will either condemn or approve what is right and what is wrong. A guilty conscience knows it's guilty. Titus 1.15 Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their minds and conscience is defiled. Remember in John chapter 8, the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto Jesus a woman who had been taken in adultery, and they wanted to see how He was going to handle that situation. Remember that? They came tempting Him, is what it says, because they wanted a reason that they could accuse Jesus of something. In John 8, verses 6-9, through 9, it says, But Jesus stooped down, and with His finger... Did you catch that? With His finger. What shows up here? These fingers. Jesus stoops down, and with His finger, wrote on the ground as though He heard them not, So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. They which heard it being convicted in their own conscience went one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Now what do you suppose was most convincing? uh, Let me say that. What, What do you suppose was most convicting to their conscience? The fact that Jesus said... He that is without sin, uh, let him cast the first stone? Or was it the fact of what Jesus was writing on the ground? And so let's not miss the significance in our text here of the power of the written Word of God. Even though the king couldn't understand it, it still struck fear into his heart. And though the most prideful sinner can convince himself that he doesn't fear God, and he might can do that for a season... Eventually, he's going to come to fear the written Word of God. And I believe because he knew in his conscience all along that that Word is true. Isn't it interesting, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And and guess what was opened? The books. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. How powerful is the written word of God? Many proud sinners have left this world only to immediately have a Daniel 5-6 experience. Can you imagine that first glimpse of the Lord and the knowledge of His judgment 
to come upon you if you leave this world without Christ? Can you imagine that feeling? I can imagine their face going pale. I can imagine their, the joints of their loins going loose, as it were. I, I can imagine them buckling and their knees begin to shake together as they stand in utter fear before the holy God of heaven and earth. And in that moment, at least at the great white throne, there's coming a point that they are going to know the power of the written Word of God. And it will rush over them as their thoughts begin to trouble them and they stand in the presence of the Word of God Himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. What a thought. And, and I didn't read all of that tonight, but it's, you can see it in there. The written Word terrifies. Our conscience can be soothed. Amen. You don't have to be in fear of dying. You don't have to fear the written word of God in the sense of going to hell. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to fear God's coming judgment. But you can have a clear conscience. Hebrews 10, 22, and I know i got to finish. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can have a clear conscience through the blood of Christ. And we can be washed by the pure water of God's Word because Christ paid our sin debt upon the cruel cross of Calvary. And now, I don't know about you, but I have the assurance that my standing before God is secure. And when I appear before Him or He appears in the clouds, I will have joy at His appearing. And thanks be to God for His saving grace and for the forgiveness of sins. So I'll finish with this. Maybe you are hiding your fear before men, but deep down you're terrified of what is to come when you die. You can have peace tonight, and you will no longer have to fear the judgment of God to come. Let's pray.